This talk was given by Patrick Yunin Kelly at the Zen Center of New York City. Yunin is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. So good morning. This is from the record of Master Dongshan. The master, whose personal name was Liangjie, was a member of the Yu family of Guiji. Once, as a child, when reading the Heart Sutra with his tutor, he came to the line, There is no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. He immediately felt his face with his hand, then said to his tutor, I have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and the rest. Why does the sutra say that they don't exist? This took the tutor by surprise, and recognizing Dongshan's uniqueness, he said, I am not capable of being your teacher. From there, the master went to Wuxie Mountain, where after making obeisance to Chan Master Lingmo, he took the robe and shaved his head. When he was 21, he went to Song Mountain and took the complete precepts. So good morning again. Um, my name is Yunin. Uh, I use he and him pronouns, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a senior lay student here in the order and also the, uh, the office manager, so um, if you've called or emailed, we've probably met in some way. Um, and, and I just wanted to say, uh, Hojin Sensei mentioned this morning about um, the speaker offering their enjoyment of the Dharma, and I thought that was a really nice way of putting it, so hopefully... Um, something of that uh, will, will come through. Um, so I've discussed this story actually <laughs> several times, but it keeps, uh, it really stays with me, this story of Dongshan um, and this line from the Heart Sutra. Uh, it, I think, uh, and, and I just wanted to take it up again and, and see if I can turn it a little bit more. Partly because I, um, I'm not sure that I entirely understand it, and I, I've been really appreciating sometimes things that I don't understand. Um, I think I understand it somewhat, and also don't understand it. You know, I was thinking when when we think that we we usually like to understand things and don't like it when we don't understand something, and we tend to 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 grasp for understanding and and sort of push away our not understanding. But it's interesting, if you look at, at what happens when you understand something, often when you, when you conclude that you understand it, you stop paying attention to it maybe, and, and maybe even fall asleep to it a little bit. It could be a, you know, a teaching, it could be a person, it could be some aspect of yourself. And often the, the, the Buddhist teachings, uh, you know, maybe someone like Dogen in particular, we often feel like, I, I don't really understand what he's talking about. But that's a, that's a very precious thing, actually. And I've been feeling myself, I, I, I don't want to be in too much of a rush to get beyond that. So I, I, I've been appreciating uh, my understanding as well as my not understanding. And I think, we need, I think we need both if we're to truly understand. But... So this story, what I wanted to, to use it um, to look at is, in particular, the uh, 
the Buddhist teaching of, of no self, anatman, and especially with regard to the body. You know, this, this teaching of anatman, of no self, is, is quite radical. I mean, we, we repeat it a lot, and so maybe it gets a little bit dulled with time. But it's, it's, it's quite wondrous. We identify so profoundly with our self, and in particular with our body, with our body, with our words, and with our thoughts, in particular with the body, though, it seems. You know, if someone were to ask me, you know, who are you? I might say, I'm me, and point to this body. You know, here, Yunnan, this lump of red flesh, as we say. And in a sense, that's what Dongchan is saying. I have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. Why does the sutra say that I don't? This teaching of, of no self, Anatman, is one of the Buddha's the Buddha's earliest teachings. It's actually usually couched in part of a, a, a teaching called the, the Three Marks of Existence, the Tri Lakshana. Um, and th- this teaching is that all compounded things, and the emphasis is in particular on selves, on yourself, myself, are characterized by three marks, impermanence, selflessness, and suffering. Some traditions at a, at a fourth mark, um, which is nirvana is peace. And so the, the, the first marks, impermanence and selflessness, are sort of like, these are descriptive, descriptive of the nature of reality. This is how things are, basically, if we look closely. And this third mark, suffering, or dukkha, is what happens when we perhaps inevitably, seek to live in unreality. We have this notion that somehow within or behind or beyond the body, behind all of my hopes, fears, dreams, memories, there is some something, some abiding essence of mind, self, that persists throughout all of the changes that's permanent, unique, immortal, maybe, indestructible. But the Buddha found, after a very exhaustive search, he saw that there was no such thing. And yet, what is this here? According to the tradition, um, the Buddhist tradition, um, what we experience as self is a sort of nexus of of impersonal processes to which we impute uh, a unitary self-existence. The the Sanskrit word is uh, svabhava. And in one, one uh, version, there are, there are five processes, and these are the five skandhas that we chanted this morning in the Heart Sutra that make up a, a sentient being. Form, uh, sensation, conception, discrimination, awareness. These are, these are translations, and you'll see different translations of these. Um, and if, if you like, it's interesting to get into the... the 
in some ways, the, the original, the Sanskrit, or the you know Chinese terminology, it's 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 quite accurate and it's it's interesting to look at that. But I don't <laughs> I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. Um, uh, but but in the in the Mahayana teachings, it said that even these skandhas, these five constituents, until we in which the we can analyze the self, are, are themselves also composite entities, and are in turn empty. So it's the further you look, you find you see something, and then you look into that, and that dissolves into components as well. It's like peeling away the layers of the onion, and then finally, what's underneath the last layer? I don't know. And I was just thinking, so I have a, um, in one of my, uh, I guess, past lives, I had a scientific uh, background, and, and I, I, I find it interesting to, to compare some of this stuff to, say, uh, modern biology, and I want to, to maybe offer you a little bit of that, because it's, it's meaningful for me, and, and perhaps it's helpful. Um, you know, I don't think actually that, that Buddhism and science are, people sometimes, I don't think they're actually saying exactly the same thing, but there is some overlap, which is productive and interesting. But so, so to take a scientific point of view, we can, we can start with an organism and say like the self is a biological organism, you know, a mammal, a vertebrate, an elephant, a cat, a ginkgo tree, a cockroach, a union, and it seems like evident what we mean by that. But when you look closely, you see that any organism is constantly taking in nutrients from the environment and and putting out waste products. You know, after a couple of weeks, all of the molecules—not well, probably most, probably not all—but most of the molecules in your body will have been exchanged with something else. And in this sense, the self is more like a. It's like an eddy in a stream. You know, the water is flowing and moving, but there's a recognizable pattern that it takes. But if you look closely, even so, like in a in a human being, for example, uh, just take the uh, the the intestinal uh, uh, the bacteria that live in the the, the animal and the GI tract. In fact, it turns out there's more bacteria in a human being than there are human cells. So you wonder which is the guest and which is the host. And well, we could say, well, obviously, you know, the bacteria, it's just this sort of heterogeneous mishmash of different populations. And I mean, the, you know, the human cells have a sort of unified genetic lineage. They all descend from a, a single uh, fertilized zygote at one point. And so obviously, I mean, the, when I say self, I mean the human cells. I mean, never mind that the bacteria, we need them actually to function properly. <clears throat> but, okay, so, so if you take like the single human cell and say, well, this is what I mean. This has kind of self-existence. If you look closely, like a, a eukaryotic cell has hundreds of mitochondria within a single cell. And it turns out that uh, these mitochondria, they're, they're organelles, they provide a lot of the cell's energy through a process called oxidative phosphorylation. But it turns out, um, people have found out by studying these, that at one point, about two and a half billion years ago, mitochondria were free-living organisms that were captured by the, uh, the host, the, the primordial ancestor of the eukaryotic cell, 
and engulfed and ingested. And then they, they weren't totally degraded and they began living together. And the mitochondria could provide, they could metabolize oxygen, which the other cell couldn't. And the other cell provided an environment for the mitochondria. So it's this association. So every cell of your body is a kind of sangha of these different um, organisms. The mitochondria, they even have their own uh, genomic uh, DNA. So you could say, okay, let's zero in a little bit further, and we'll look at the, the genome and the nucleus of the cell. That is what I mean by myself. Well, it turns out, if you look at this, that the, the human genome, so much of it is composed of, of what we call um, uh, retroviral proviruses. So these are retroviruses are... are um, they're viruses, they're RNA viruses, that when they invade a host, they make a copy of their own genome, they copy from RNA into DNA, and they put it in the host genome. And then, um, so HIV is like the most well-known retrovirus, but there are others. And if this takes place in a, in a, a, a gamete, a, a cell that becomes, a germline cell, like a, a sperm or an egg that becomes fertilized, then that viral uh, DNA will be in all of the progeny of that cell in perpetuity. Um, so we have, it turns out, uh, scientists call this, this uh, I love this terminology, they call it a uh, germline invasion event. <laughs> um, but people have found many instances of this in our deep evolutionary past. So for example, all of us have uh, viral DNA from from one virus, it was identified as having infected the uh, primate ancestor of human beings over 43 million years ago. So we all have that in us. And there are others that are believed to go even further back, and they're probably responsible for the evolution of, of placental mammals. And not only that, it turns out that uh, probably around 8% of the human genome is, is this old retroviral DNA. Whereas only about 1% or 2% is actually protein-coding genes that we think of when we say genes, my genes. So there's more uh, old retroviral DNA in us than our own genes, which is another kind of um, interesting. So, so, well, you could go maybe a step further and say, well, maybe it's these protein-coding genes are what I really mean, just this 1.5% of the genome. And... You know, there, this is sort of like, it's about the, the sort of predominant view or a, a common view these days is that genes are the fundamental sort of irreducible element of biological evolution. So you could say that, that organisms or populations or even cultural artifacts are sort of like appendages of genes. They just, they're just the, the machinery that allow genes to do their thing and to propagate. You know, it's sort of, actually, I was thinking, this is sort of like the, the, the Abhidharma, the claim that, that the self can be decomposed into um, individual dharmas are elements of experience that are irreducible. But it turns out that not even these genes are fundamental. So this is a quote from a biologist who, um, he says, uh, biologists know that genes don't order their bodies around. No characteristic of any living thing emerges full-grown from the coils of DNA. Every phenotypic trait, including behavior, results from a complex interaction of genetic potential and experience. Uh, 
learning as well as instinct, nature inextricably combined with nurture. Nature with nurture, sorry. Life is a matter of genetic influence, not determinism. So in other words, the organism can't be separated from the environment. The genes can't be separated from the environment. And that environment is the genome, the cells, the organism, and the larger environment. So it, it goes both ways. So we're back where we started. You know, we, we want, but we want so badly to have some sort of solid foundation that we can rest on. Here's a story. A well-known scientist, some say it was Bertrand Russell, once gave a public lecture on astronomy. He described how the Earth orbits the sun and how the sun in turn orbits around the center of a vast collection of stars called our galaxy. At the end of the lecture, a little old lady at the back of the room got up and said, what you have told us is rubbish. The world is really a flat plate supported on the back of a giant turtle. The scientist gave a superior smile before replying, what is the the turtle standing on? She said, you're very clever, young man, very clever, but it's turtles all the way down. And, you know, this story is apocryphal, and you could kind of read it as, there's a little bit of, you know, I think maybe sort of condescension towards this woman, but I, I like to think of her as one of these, um, these tea ladies on the side of the road in, this, uh, in, the, in the classic Zen stories. Often you'll have a, um, you know, some monk is traveling somewhere and, and runs into one of these women who are really profoundly realized uh, practitioners, sort of undercover, and they'll have an encounter, and, and the woman, they, they, they sometimes don't even have names, will puncture the monk, sort of surgically take this monk apart and leave him there. And I, I, I like to read this story this way, you know, um, we can speak of organisms, cells, chromosomes, nucleic acids, carbon atoms, protons and neutrons, quarks, so on, and on and on. But in a sense, these are just different turtles. They're useful conventions, but it, it really is turtles all the way down. I, I would even say it's turtles in all the ten directions. They're not standing on anything at all. So this, you know, this scientific viewpoint is it—it's it, focused on an empirical description of reality, and it—I I find it helpful. It helps me to see the compounded nature of of things. But, but the real question is, what does this mean for you personally, in your experience, in your life? And the Buddha was not mostly, primarily interested in empirical descriptions. He was after the extinction of suffering. And not in the abstract, but your suffering, my suffering. One of the, the, the tools that we use for, for studying the nature of reality and the nature of our suffering here are, um, in this tradition, what we call uh, koans. I've, I've said the word before, and I... I'm maybe not the best person to talk about this because I, I, I kind of do koan study and then I switch to something else and I can't seem to go in a straight line. But, 
But the, these koans are not, they're sometimes described as, as riddles, which I don't think is a very good description. In a, in a strict sense, they're, they're teaching stories from the, the lives of past Zen teachers and practitioners. And they're used to test a person's understanding and to, and to provoke insight. But in, in a larger, and I think the sense it's more helpful to think of them as is just, they're, they're the barriers that we encounter in our life. You know, regardless of whether we, we do this formally or not, um, we encounter these barriers in our life. If you've, I mean, everyone has probably been in a situation where you feel stuck. You can't go forward and you can't go backward and you can't put it down either. One Zen teacher, Moman, says it's, it's as if you've swallowed a red hot iron ball. You try to vomit it out, but you can't. That's what a koan feels like, I think. And, and we, we, sometimes we just try and find a way to go back to sleep because it's too much. You know, and there are various ways of going back to sleep. We can blame someone else. We can watch a movie. We can have a few drinks. Uh, there's all sorts of possibilities. But as, as practitioners, our vow is to, to step into that fire with our eyes wide open, with our heart wide open, for the benefit of, of all beings. And so when we encounter one of these barriers, we sit down in the midst of the impossible situation and practice intimacy with it. You know, let the, let the cold rain soak you all the way to the bone. And, and, and in this way, slowly, we begin to see that every barrier is workable. You could say that, that any human life is just uh, a series of koan encounters. You struggle with one and sweat and cry and fight. And at some point you pass through it and then another one appears. You may, you know, sometimes you feel like, am I even getting anywhere? In, in the formal koan study, there's a curriculum. And I, you know, I sometimes waste my time by, by looking back and thinking, oh, these are all the ones that I've passed through, and these are all the ones that I have to go through yet. And it, and I, but then I sometimes look at one of the ones that I, I passed through, and I'm like, I don't know what the hell that's about. <laughs> Did I really pass through it? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> and then there's all these ones in front and all the ones in back, and I don't know even where I am anymore. And I get an experience of vertigo. You know, it's like it's, it's koans all the way down. Dogen says, It is difficult to explain by what and of what this present land and palace are made. To say that they rest on the wheel of space and the wheel of wind is true neither for oneself nor for others. It is just speculating on the basis of little understanding. And it is only said out of fear that without such a resting place, things would not abide. The Buddha has said all dharmas are ultimately liberated. They have no abode. We should realize that although they are liberated, 
without any bonds. All dharmas abide in their own state. A common misconception, I think, about the teaching of no self is that it asks us to erase the self or to get rid of it. If we hear it in this way, this can be upsetting, disturbing, especially if there are, act, there are aspects of the self that, that we haven't really acknowledged. Uh, for many reasons, maybe you had to downplay or, or hide aspects of the self in order to be accepted, in order to be loved, maybe even in order to survive. So it can be useful, but ultimately that's not what this is about. The, the Buddha taught the middle way, which is beyond self-indulgence, of hedonism and beyond the self-denial of asceticism. He tried both, and he found that neither worked. In fact, I, th- I think that, that selflessness can only be manifest through selves. And those, that self is, is different for each one of us. So there are, obviously, male and female selves, cis, trans, non-binary selves, black, white, brown, Asian, indigenous, multiracial selves, your particular history, your strengths, your weaknesses, your skills, your anger, your joy, your grief, your skepticism, your faith. Dongshan says, I have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and the rest. Why does the sutra say they don't exist? It's actually only because of this body and because of this self that we're able to um, study and realize the Buddha way. Dogen says, to study the way with the body means to study the way with your own body is the study of the way using this lump of red flesh. Uh, Daido, who was the, the founder of this order, used to speak, he didn't make this up, I don't think, but he used to speak of the body as, as the skin bag. You know, the skin is the barrier that separates inside from outside, self from others. And in, in that sense, it is the barrier, it is the great barrier of self and other, the koan of self and other. How do we pass through the barrier? Who are you? When we experience ourself as a self enclosed in a skin bag, we suffer. But we can liberate that suffering. We just need to turn towards it, our suffering, to make friends with it, to hold it with loving attention, to study it exhaustively. And when we, when we study our suffering, our self, exhaustively, the skin bag is transformed into the 16-foot golden body of the Buddha. Actually, that's not even right. You, it, it, you see that it always was the 16-foot golden body of the Buddha. It's not different. In, the, in one of the koan collections, the Muman Khan, Muman says, once you pass through the barrier, you walk the universe alone.
This is not the aloneness of isolation. It's the aloneness of no inside and no outside. Last week, Kojin Sensei read from the, the Avatamsaka Sutra and spoke about Indra's net. This vast net that stretches out infinitely in all directions, and at each node is a jewel, a diamond, that reflects every other node in the net. So each node contains and is contained by every other node. You know, this is, this is our life, actually. It's a description of our life, our true human body. It, it fills the entire world of the ten directions, and it's no other than your particular self. So, I just want to, I'll end with this. Um, this is from Dogen again, and I think it sort of revisits everything that I've been trying to talk about. When even for a moment you sit upright in samadhi, expressing the Buddha mudra and the three activities of body, speech, and thought, the whole world of phenomena becomes the Buddha mudra, and the entire sky turns into enlightenment. Accordingly, all Buddha Tathagatas increase Dharma bliss, the original source, and renew their magnificence in the awakening of the way. Furthermore, all beings in the world of phenomena and the ten directions and the six migrations, including the three bad migrations of the hell realm, the preta realm, and the animal realm, at once obtain pure body and mind, realize the state of great emancipation, and manifest the original face. At this moment, all things actualize true awakening. Myriad objects partake of the Buddha body, and sitting upright, a glorious one under the Bodhi tree, you immediately leap beyond the boundary of awakening. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.